You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 196 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, over the last two episodes, we've looked at the last of the major fighting on the northern end of the battlefield at Antietam. With the rout of Sedgwick's division in the West Woods and the loss of Green's foothold near the Dunker Church, the federal effort to smash the Confederate left came to a close. Now the focus of the fighting would shift toward the center of Robert E. Lee's line, where the rebel infantry held a strong position along a sunken farm lane. As you guys know, um, since we've mentioned it several times, but when 2nd Corps Commander Edwin Bull Sumner took his lead division, commanded by John Sedgwick, out of the East Woods and straight across the battlefield toward the West Woods, Sumner's 2nd Division, under Brigadier General William H. French, was still about 20 minutes away. Evidently, Bull Sumner was in such a hurry that he gave no thought to waiting for French. Nor did Sumner even leave a staff officer behind in the East Woods with orders for him. And so when William French reached the East Woods about a quarter after nine that morning, he could find no sign of Sumner or Sedgwick. Once Sedgwick's troops had crossed the ridge on which the Hagerstown Turnpike ran, and entered the Westwoods beyond, they were out of French's line of sight. Although the noise of battle in that direction must have made it plain that someone was having a pretty rough time of it over in the distant woodlot, French decided to go off in a different direction, one that would take him into action about three-quarters of a mile southeast of where Sedgwick's division was meeting with disaster in the West Woods. As French surveyed the situation, the only Federals then in sight were Green's troops over near the Dunker Church, and so about 9.30 he decided to take his division and position it on Green's left. Meanwhile, over on the other side of the lines, as French began moving his division south to come up on Green's left, Robert E. Lee was conferring with Major General Daniel Harvey Hill. D.H. Hill's division was holding the center of the Confederate line along a sunken farm road. 600 yards south of the Dunker Church, the road ran due eastward from the Hagerstown Turnpike for something over a quarter of a mile until it connected with William Roulette's farm lane. At that juncture, the road turned southeasterly for another quarter of a mile, then angled sharply southward to meet the Boonesboro Turnpike halfway between, between Sharpsburg and Antietam Creek. 
Over the years, erosion and heavily loaded farm wagons on their way to a grist mill on the creek had worn the lane down until for much of its length it was several feet below the level of the ground on either side of it. Where this had happened, the road formed, in effect, a long, ready-made trench for infantry. It was known locally as the Sunken Road, but over the next few hours it would earn another name, Bloody Lane. As Robert E. Lee and D.H. Hill rode along Hill's lines, it became apparent to them that the strong federal column they saw moving in the distance, if it kept to its present course, would probably smash into Hill's position before much longer. Lee asked Hill if he could hold, and Colonel John B. Gordon of the 6th Alabama, overhearing the question, called out, These men are going to stay here, General, till the sun goes down or victory is won. Lee and D.H. Hill then moved back to a piece of high ground along the Hagerstown Turnpike, where they had a better view. They were joined there by James Longstreet. Realizing they were exposed on the high ground, Lee and Longstreet dismounted, but Hill, pleading fatigue, remained on his horse. Longstreet told Hill that if he insisted on remaining mounted, he should move off away from them, lest he draw enemy fire. Just as Hill started to move off, a distant boom and a puff of smoke from an enemy cannon caught Longstreet's attention. "'Here's a shot for General Hill now,' he said. The words had barely cleared Longstreet's lips when a shell came hurtling down and severed the front legs of Hill's horse. The stricken animal plunged forward onto its stumps, but it didn't fall over. Still in the saddle and feet still in the stirrups, A shaken hill tried to dismount from the poor animal in as normal a fashion as possible before giving in to the more obvious but less dignified method of exiting to the rear. By the time of Hill's near miss, French's three brigades of Federals had reached the roulette farm where they encountered the Confederate skirmish line. With 5,700 Yankees bearing down on them, the rebel skirmishers wasted little time in vacating the spot and heading back to their own lines. As French deployed his brigades, word finally reached him that Sedgwick was being severely handled up in the West Woods, and French was urged to launch his attack as soon as possible to try to relieve some of the pressure on Sedgwick. A native of Baltimore, 47-year-old William Henry French, was a graduate of the West Point class of 1837 and a career army officer with a reputation as a tough fighter. A disconcerting habit of rapidly blinking his eyes when he was under stress had led to his nickname, Old Blinky. With his three brigades deployed in lines of battle, French marched south. South of the Roulette Farm buildings, the ground rose gradually for about 400 yards, and beyond the crest of this ridge, about 100 yards away, at the bottom of the slope, waited D.H. Hill's Confederates. Hill and his division of five brigades had started the morning of September 17th, deployed in the center of Robert E. Lee's defensive line. As y'all recall, though, Hill, about the time of Hood's counterattack, had sent three of his brigades to help out the embattled Confederate left. Those units had been badly battered in the brutal fighting there. 
And so now, altogether, D.H. Hill had perhaps 2,500 men holding the line, a force less than half the size of that advancing against him. But Hill's two uncommitted brigades, ably led by Robert Rhodes and George B. Anderson, occupied a superb defensive position, and to strengthen it, the Confederates had torn down the fences that lined lined the farm lane and piled them up along the bank to form a rough breastwork. And General Lee also had reinforcements in the form of Richard H. Anderson's division hustling toward the sunken road. Exactly. So, holding the deepest part of the lane were 1,150 North Carolinians led by Brigadier General George B. Anderson. The 32-year-old Tar Heel was a graduate of the West Point class of 1852 and a rising star in the Confederate Army, having earned official praise for his hard fighting and leadership during the Seven Days Battles. Anderson had four regiments in line along the sunken road, from left to right, the 2nd, 14th, 4th, and 30th North Carolina. On Anderson's left were 750 Alabamians, led by another commander, who was fast gaining an excellent reputation, Brigadier General Robert Rhodes. A year older than Anderson, the native Virginian was a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute. Rhodes had five regiments posted from the point where the sunken road turned at the juncture with Roulette's farm lane back toward the Hagerstown Turnpike. From right to left were the 6th, 5th, 3rd, 12th, and 26th Alabama. The 6th Alabama, whose colonel, John B. Gordon, had made the bold claim to General Lee, connected with the 2nd North Carolina just at the point where the sunken road made the bend to the southeast, and then to the left of Rhodes, extending the Confederate line west over to the Hagerstown Turnpike, were the remnants of the already bloodied brigades of Colonels Alfred Colquitt and Duncan McRae. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article. 
to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt and experience a legendary culture. My first impulse was to open fire upon the compact mass as soon as it came within reach of my rifles, and to pour into its front an incessant hailstorm of bullets during its entire advance across the broad open plain, but after a moment's reflection that plan was discarded. The only remaining plan was one which I had never tried, but in the efficacy of which I had the utmost faith. It was to hold my fire until the advancing Federals were almost upon my lines, and then turn loose a sheet of flame and lead in their faces. I did not believe that any troops on earth could withstand so sudden a shock and withering a fire. The program was fixed in my own mind. All horses were sent to the rear, and my men were at once directed to lie down upon the grass and clover. They were quickly made to understand, through my aides and line officers, that not a shot was to be discharged until my voice should be heard from the center commanding, Fire! There was no artillery at this point upon either side, and not a rifle was discharged. The stillness was literally oppressive, as in close order, with the commander still riding in front, this column of Union infantry moved majestically in the charge. In a few minutes they were within easy range of our rifles, and some of my impatient men asked for permission to fire. Not yet, I replied. Wait for the order. Soon they were so close that we might have seen the eagles on their buttons, but my brave and eager boys still waited for the order. Now the front rank was within a few rods of where I stood. It would not do to wait another second, and with all my lung power I shouted, Fire! My rifles flamed and roared in the Federals' faces like a blinding blaze of lightning accompanied by the quick and deadly thunderbolt. The effect was appalling. The entire front line, with few exceptions, went down in the consuming blast. The gallant commander and his horse fell in a heap near where I stood, the horse dead, the rider unhurt. Before his rear lines could recover from the terrific shock, my exultant men were on their feet, devouring them with successive volleys. Colonel John B. Gordon, 6th Alabama Infantry, Rhodes Brigade. Our colonel dashed in front with the ringing order, Charge! And charge we did into that leaden hail. Within less than five minutes, 286 men out of 635 and 8 of 10 company commanders lay wounded or dead on that bloody slope. The colonel's horse had been struck by four bullets, The lieutenant colonel was wounded and his horse killed, and our dearly loved colors were lying within twenty yards of the frowning lines of muskets, surrounded by the lifeless bodies of nine heroes who died while trying to plant them in that road of death. When the Maryland boys joined us, Captain Captain Ricketts of Company C, our regiment, called for volunteers to save the colors, and more than thirty brave fellows responded. It seemed as if they had just started, when at least twenty, including the gallant leader, were killed, and those who would have rushed forward were forced back by the withering fire. Maddened and more desperate than ever, I called for the men to make another effort, 
and before we marched fifty yards, only a scattering few remained. While covering that short distance, it seemed as if a million bees were singing in the air. But I had reached the goal, had caught up the staff, which was already splintered by shot, and the colors pierced with many a hole, and stained here and there with the lifeblood of our comrades, when a bullet shattered my arm. Luckily my legs were still serviceable, and seizing the precious bunting with my left hand, I made the best eighty-yard time on record, receiving two more wounds. Lieutenant Charles B. Tanner, 1st Delaware Infantry, Weber's Brigade William French's division was a patchwork affair since it had only recently been assembled for this campaign. The first of French's three brigades to attack the Confederate line along the sunken road was Brigadier General Max Weber's. The 38-year-old native German had served as an officer in the military in his homeland before immigrating to America and going into the hotel business in New York. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Weber offered his services to his adopted country. Now here at Antietam, his 1,700 men made up the first wave of French's attack. In Weber's line, from right to left, were the 1st Delaware, the 5th Maryland, and the 4th New York. Quite a few members of the 5th Maryland were native-born Germans, like Weber, including the regiment's color bearer, a huge fellow well over six feet tall and weighing more than 300 pounds. This fellow marched at such a stately pace, refusing to speed up, that the two flank regiments moved beyond the Marylanders during the advance, and as a result, when the firing started, Weber's line had formed a concave shape. The Confederates held their fire as the Federals approached. Up and down the line, rebel officers told their men not to open fire until the Yankees had closed to point-blank range. The order to fire wasn't given until the Federals had crested the ridge to the front of the sunken road and started down the slope toward the Confederate position. When the Yankees were only about 80 yards away, a devastating volley exploded from the waiting rebels, as described in that quote I shared a few moments ago from Colonel Gordon. Weber's troops tried valiantly to press forward, but the Confederate fire was overwhelming. Within five minutes, as many as 500 Federals fell, including Weber. All nine members of the 1st Delaware's Color Guard also fell. As that regiment's colonel, now commanding the brigade, gave the order to fall back, Lieutenant Charles Tanner dashed forward to rescue the fallen colors, which was the scene I shared in that quote at the top of this segment. And for bringing the 1st Delaware's colors safely off the field, Tanner would be awarded the Medal of Honor. Coming up fast behind Weber was French's 2nd Brigade, 1,000 troops under Colonel Dwight Morris. Morris's three regiments from left to right were the 108th New York, 130th Pennsylvania, and 14th Connecticut. All were new regiments entering combat for the first time, and their reception was equally bloody. By all accounts, though, they handled themselves fairly well on this day, although there was an unfortunate friendly fire incident when nervous members of the 14th Connecticut fired into the rear of the 1st Delaware. In any case, in the face of the intense Confederate fire, 
Morris's brigade couldn't carry the advance any further forward than had Weber's, and both brigades fell back to the relative safety of the reverse slope of the ridge above the sunken road. In a letter written the next day, Captain Samuel Fisk of the 14th Connecticut recorded what it was like to go into combat for the first time. It was, he wrote, quote, a scene of indescribable confusion. Troops didn't know what they were expected to do, and sometimes, in their excitement, fired on their own men. The troops before us broke, and came running back upon us, crying out, some of them, skedaddle, skedaddle. Some of our men tried to stop them, and a few, it must be confessed, joined in their flight. But in the main, for green troops, I think we behaved well, the men firing with precision and deliberation, though some shut their eyes and fired up into the air. The Confederates suffered their only serious casualties in this phase of the fight when some of them left their well-sheltered position in the sunken road and launched impromptu counterattacks against the reeling Yankees. These rebel assaults helped convince Morris's Federals to fall back behind the crest of the ridge in front of the sunken road. Old Blinky now pushed his 3rd Brigade forward. These four regiments were led by Brigadier General Nathan Kimball. Kimball was a Mexican war veteran, a former schoolteacher and doctor from Indiana, who held the distinction of having bested both Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson in battle, the former at Cheat Mountain in September 1861 and the latter at Kernstown in March of 1862. Here at Antietam, as soon as he received his orders from French, Kimball rode along his lines and called out to his troops, Now, boys, we are going, and we'll stay with them all day if they want us to. Three of Kimball's regiments, the 14th Indiana, 8th Ohio, and 7th West Virginia, comprised the only true combat veterans in French's entire division. Kimball's 4th Regiment, the 132nd Pennsylvania, led by Colonel Richard Oakley, was a 90-day outfit, only recently mustered into service. In The Gleam of Bayonets, James Murphy's classic account of the Battle of Antietam, he writes, quote, During the advance of the 132nd Pennsylvania, a Confederate shell hit a colony of beehives in the roulette orchard. It was touch and go for a while as the men ran for cover from an odd assortment of swarming bullets and bees. At this particular moment, the 132nd, a recently recruited regiment, could not have cared less whether it was more humiliating to break under the sting of lead or bees. The whole thing was a little too much for them. These boys would never forget this incident. Long after time clouded their memories, they still remembered their skirmish with the bees. Kimball's brigade marched around and past Weber's and Morse's men, who had withdrawn and gone to ground, and were returning the rebels' fire from behind the relative safety of the crest of the ridge. Kimball's advance brought him into position slightly to the left of where the other two brigades had made their assaults. That made Kimball's troops more directly fronted Anderson's North Carolinians. As they crested the ridge overlooking the sunken road, Kimball's troops were met by the same destructive fire that had punished French's other two brigades. Colonel Oakley, whose 132nd Pennsylvania had just rallied after their skirmish with the roulette bees, 
was cut down by the first rebel volley. It was soon obvious that Kimball's troops could make no more headway against the formidable sunken road position than their comrades who had preceded them. A sergeant in the 8th Ohio said, quote, We'd seen a great deal of service before now, but our fighting had been mostly of the casual, skirmishing sort. What we see now looks to us like systematic killing. End quote. As Kimball's brigade, like the other two brigades before it, fell back to regroup, that sergeant heard Kimball say, God save my poor boys. With this repulse, French's division was finished as an offensive weapon. Its losses would total 1,760, second only to Sedgwick's division. However, that was only round one of the fight for the sunken road. Round two was about to kick off, as reinforcements for both sides were about to arrive on the scene. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Long Road to Antietam, How the Civil War Became a Revolution, by Richard Slotkin. Slotkin's book, as its subtitle suggests, uh, combines the military and the political in telling the story of the 1862 Maryland campaign, showing how the Battle of Antietam was enough of a victory for the Union to provide Abraham Lincoln with the opportunity to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, and the political, social, and military consequences of that action were how the Civil War became a revolution. So that's The Long Road to Antietam by Richard Slotkin. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information about us and find links to the show's Twitter feed and Facebook page. You can also sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. We just released the 53rd members episode, finishing up the story of Stonewall Jackson at Harper's Ferry. We may actually have one more Harper's Ferry episode, as we may look at the escape of the Union cavalry from the town, uh, but we'll see about that. Well, anyway, thanks to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Mary and Jordan, and Roger and Robert, and Steve and Greg. Thanks, y'all. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we look at round two in the fight for the sunken road. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.